Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt and this is Cyber. We've got a supersized Cyber for you today that's all about the two hottest movies that are in the theaters. One is a mythological take on the creation of the modern world and the devastating weapons that ushered it in. The other is about an idol forged from plastic that came to dominate that world. That's right, it's Barbenheimer time. Emily Lipstein is co-hosting with me, and we're joined by nuclear historian and master of secrets Alex Wellerstein, as well as journalist and critic Gita Jackson. Let's get started. And just want to say at the top, full spoilers for both uh, Oppenheimer and Barbie. Just know that going in. We're going to get into both of them in depth. Thank you all so much for being here. Alex, thank you for coming on. Happy to be here. All right. So for for people that do not know your work, can you give us your, your bona fides? Like, what have you written? What do you study, etc.? I am a historian of science who specializes in the history of nuclear weapons. I wrote a book on the history of nuclear secrecy in the United States. I'm a professor at the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, I made the Nuke Map uh, nuclear weapons online simulator, which many people have used. Uh, I do all sorts of crazy things. So, yeah, that's my that's my stuff. I have a I have a real PhD. I do real history. I've been thinking about Oppenheimer in a serious way for about 20 years uh, as a character and have gone through his papers and met some of his relatives. And, you know, just so it's a little bit surreal that there's this movie and people are like wanting to talk about it all the time. So uh, uh, anyway, that's me. Yeah, it is an interesting time uh, because for the past, I would say for the past 20 years, um, you know, I've covered nukes not quite that long, but, but for a decent chunk of that. Um, you've obviously been immersed in this world for a long time. Um, for a while, people kind of ignored this subject or didn't care, didn't want to talk about it, right? I'm talking about the general public. Um, and now, the one of the biggest movies of the year is about the father of the atomic bomb. And we can talk about how that's, you know, how accurate that description actually is, but... <laughs> What is your feeling now? Like, are you are you tired of talking about Oppenheimer yet? Are you excited that people are paying attention? What's your general sense of the the mood? Well, I mean, I, I am a little tired of talking about Oppenheimer. I'm excited to talk about Barbie. I will say, I have nobody has asked me about Barbie yet. I've seen both, of course, uh, but uh, you know, it's interesting as a historian. I mean there are times in which people are more or less interested in nuclear weapons. And usually it's like, am I actually afraid of them at this moment? Is it North Korea? Is it Iran? Is it Russia? Whatever. And then people go to like, not thinking about them again. Oppenheimer is much stranger because like your average person does not think about Oppenheimer, even when they think about nuclear weapons that much. And so like most of the people who write on Oppenheimer and have written books on him, they're really no, no offense to any of them. They're pretty old. Like it's a cold war issue to like want to debate about Oppenheimer. And so it's been really interesting for me to see like, who is, why does Christopher Nolan care about Oppenheimer? Like, why are people interested today? Like, what does Oppenheimer mean to them? Because it's not what it meant to people who grew up in the Cold War. That's a really different Oppenheimer. And so that, that's that been very fun to engage with. 
Yeah, this gets to one of the primary things I wanted to talk to you about today. Is we had a conversation. We were in New Mexico some weeks ago, uh, both of us in the same place. And you were explaining to me that Oppenheimer uh, is a recurring character. He's been depicted in several movies and several books. Um, but the way that we talk about him has changed. And you were curious uh, what Christopher Nolan's take was going to be. Uh, why center a movie around Oppenheimer um, and what like what we what America needs Oppenheimer to be in every any given decade changes. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of take me through like your immediate reaction to Nolan's movie and what you think that he's trying to like what myth he's trying to create here. And then also the different iterations of Oppenheimer in pop culture. I know that's a big question. It's a big question. I don't want to just talk and talk. So I'll, I'll, do, I'll throw out a, a quick couple of things. Uh, we, can, we can go back and forth. Uh, you know, I was there, there was a play that came out about Oppenheimer in 1964 when he was still alive. Um, Heinrich Kippart in the matter of J. Robert Oppenheimer, which I've been sort of re looking at. And it's like hilariously terrible in many ways. Like, like, he's really blunt about what he thinks the symbolism is. Like he names one of the characters, basically Mr. Nazi. And you're like, great. That's really, really subtle. But like, he actually has a character at one point, get up in the middle of the play, break the fourth wall and say, this isn't really about Oppenheimer. This is about the modern security system. Like how blunt can you be about your symbolism to the, than that? And I was thinking about that. I, I like it as a comparison. Cause like this guy wrote this in the sixties and it's a reaction to McCarthyism. And so for him, Oppenheimer is this martyr of the security system. And like, that's why you care about him. Not because you care about Oppenheimer as an individual at all. And so the whole thing is basically fan fiction. It's hilarious because it's pretending to be the transcripts, but he's rewritten it. So like Oppenheimer's always getting in zingers <laughs> and like, it's just like really, it's really terrible uh, from a historical perspective. And like, that's not the Nolan film, right? Like, that's not what he's interested in. This is not a referendum on McCarthyism. Uh, there, there's so little of that in there. It's And, and that's interesting because the source material, American Prometheus, is written by two people who, they're great, I respect them. Uh, but they're like coming from that cold, late Cold War mindset where it's like the story of Oppenheimer is the security state gone wild and McCarthyism. And they really want to show you that like, Oppenheimer got a raw deal and we should be really, you know, sad about that. And I don't think that's really Nolan's goal. I don't get that sense. Like my sense of I've, I've seen the Oppenheimer film twice and I saw Nolan give comments after the first time, like for him, it's a combination. And maybe this is one of the reasons why the film's a little weird in my view. Nolan is kind of obsessed with like characters who try to pursue the forbidden truth, right? He has a number of them in his other movies. And so like the whole first part of the movie is Oppenheimer staring into the distance and like going insane because he's looking at the quantum realm. And that's like, okay, that's a take. <laughs> and then it becomes like make the bomb and use the bomb. And, uh, and then like, it's about like Oppenheimer, this flawed martyr who's martyring himself, like, and that's an odd take by his characters tell Oppenheimer, like, you're just doing this because you feel guilty. And that's why you're self martyr. You're like auto martyring, which is weird uh, and, and not a standard take, I will say. Uh, and then it's sort of about nuclear threats and like, what has humanity done and responsibility? And and then in a little bit, like, what are we going to do next? 
And like, so that's a weird mashup. And I feel like that's, a, that's part of the reason the movie is kind of a weird movie in my mind. Cause it's not totally in my mind, totally thematically on, you know, consistent, but that's my take. Now I'm not going to tell you what Nolan thinks because like, I mean, who knows what he thinks, but like, I thought it was an interesting use of real, again, really different from these cold war takes. Uh, uh, and, and even different from like some of the takes in the nineties, there's this movie fat man and little boy with like, uh, Paul Newman as general groves. That is a very, that, that is more like, look at this cool scientific genius take, which is a different way to do it. That Oppenheimer is not like it's slightly op- mad the whole time. Oppenheimer right? is superhero almost. It's like scientific superhero. Sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that, that's my f- read. I obviously that's just one read of it. So did you, did you, did you like the movie at all? Did you think it was effective? You've seen it twice. Yeah. Why did you see I, it? Why did you go see it twice? Well, I'd bought the ticket in advance cause I was worried it would get sold out and like the IMAX, which mm-hmm. it what was, uh, I'm, I'm in New Jersey right next to New York. So you got to go to New York and those are busy theaters. So I bought the ticket like a month in advance. And then I got invited to a screening, uh, where the audience, I think it was like the dorks screening because I was like, who's going to be there? Is this going to be Hollywood people? No, it was <laughs> scientists, historians, and journalists who work for science focused publications. I was like, okay, great. Um, that's where they got me. And uh, uh, so I saw it in advance and then saw it a few days later when it really came out. Um, Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I'm not the target audience, so like, that's fine. But as a movie, as a movie movie, it was not in my like top three Nolan movies. It was not my least favorite Nolan movie. I liked it more than I liked Tenet. So there's that. But like, the pacing is so frenetic because he's trying to fit, it feels like, so much into this three hours. Three hours is ridiculously long. So, like, it somehow goes really fast, but also takes forever. And, like, I didn't love that feeling, I have to admit. But um, I liked it more the second time because I was, in, in a way, well, here's how I went. I watched it the first time and I, like, took notes, took notes, took notes. And I was really focused on, like, what is he doing here? What's accurate? What's not? What does he fit in? And so that was like a little involved. The second time I was like, great, I don't need to take notes. I know this already. I can just sort of see if I enjoy it. In between the first and the second, I left the first time thinking, oh, this is kind of a pain. And then like I started to feel better about it over time. And then I watched it again. And I was like, no, I remember why I didn't like it as much the first time. Like I, I recall this. So like it's not the worst movie, but some of it is like. I respect that he really, in some ways, tried to make the history feel very finely textured. Like, he puts in details that are deep cuts. Like, why do this? Like, why have why have Charlotte Serber be his secretary? She has one line in the movie. You don't need to know her name. She's a real person. On the other hand, she wasn't his secretary. She was the librarian at Los Alamos. Why, why switch the names? I don't know. Like, who cares about this but me? I've, like... Red Charlotte Serber's FBI file. No one else cares about Charlotte Serber's. Uh, she's fascinating, but like, it's not like there's no books about her, right? So on the one hand, I respect that he wanted to like do that. On the other hand, I'm like, uh, like you could have made this movie streamlined, two parts. I don't know, but like trying to fit it all in, it felt like an overstuffed couch. How did you, uh, you 
can you give me like would if you would grade this on its historical accuracy? I know that's unfair to do to a movie. Yeah. Um, but you know it back to front. Like how good a job does this do kind of portraying the truth of what happened? I mean, what's the truth? I mean, and I don't mean that in a, like, I do kind of mean it in a postmodern way, but like, I, I mean that in like a, like, what is the bar we want to hold up? Because I don't, what's the, a lot of it is about, who is Robert Oppenheimer? And I will tell you every historian who works in Oppenheimer would have a different take on that. Like he's a complicated figure and that he doesn't fit into a little box and he's inconsistent and he has lots of different perspectives. And I don't know, my Oppenheimer is not going to be Marty Bird and Kai, uh, Marty Sherwin and Kai Bird's Oppenheimer. They wrote the book that, that the film is largely inspired by. And also like, what do you want out of a film? Like he does things where he like alters the history I think deliberately because he's trying to make the film coherent and streamlined. And some of those things I would say, Oh, that gives a really misleading impression. Such as I get why you did that. Well, like it basically skips the whole period from 1949, 1945 to 1949. You sort of jump from hooray, the war is over to, uh Oh, the Soviets have a bomb. And you can see why you do that. The misleading thing is, Part of the narrative is Oppenheimer getting sidelined. And that doesn't happen because in 45 to 49, he is extremely important. He does a lot of things. They make it seem like his his desire for diplomacy is this just like vain hope he puts out and gets ignored. Like literally, they present this to the United Nations. He's the presented he's sitting in the back you can see him in pictures like he's not sidelined he's writing policy he's a major guy lewis straws does not become the chairman of the atomic energy commission until 1952 and so the guy is in front of him the main one david lilienthal is oppenheimer's friend like so like the story the narrative is not quite right in that way where you're like oh then the bad guys took power like no then oppenheimer's friends took power and then Strauss only takes power a lot later. And so like it, it, there's a part of that, that like, I get why he did that. He clearly did that deliberately. That's not an accidental choice. Yeah. But, but I will also say that the, 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 the like explicit framing of the movie, it tells you at the very, like in the very first frame, right? It is, we're going to explain the Prometheus myth to you over a fireball. Uh, this is his, this is like received history as myth, Right. Um, I think the goal of the thing, uh, trying to read Nolan's mind, is to set up yeah. Oppenheimer as this self-martyred character uh, that is trying to that makes is trying to make us feel a certain way about nuclear weapons, right? Um, and is that a worthwhile project in and of itself? I mean, sorry, I dropped a pencil. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting project. I don't know if I see Oppenheimer as self-martyred, and so th- to me, that's a point where we would have just like big thematic questions about like, what's the point here of Oppenheimer and like, what's the, how should we understand his security hearing? I don't think it was self-martyred at all personally. Um, I think he, I don't think he intended to martyr himself. Um, And uh, so like, I don't know. I don't know. I will just say there's also some stuff that's wrong that I don't know if Nolan knows it's wrong, right? Like it's wrong but probably maybe accidentally. So, and some of that stuff is 
important to me because it's important to how we think about this history of nuclear weapons. Like the whole scene where they have what's supposed to be like the interim committee meeting where it's with the secretary of war and Oppenheimer and Groves. Like that is very misleading in several ways. And is this where they're picking targets? Yeah, they're picking targets and Oppenheimer is kind of sidelined and he has to convince them that this bomb is important and we're taking seriously. Like, that's not true. That's just not true. Like Stimson understood this. He opens the meeting with basically a statement saying, like, this is more important than the than Copernicus. And this is going to change everything in the world. And we have to think about the long term consequences. He he knows this. He's been he's the one guy who knows this at the high levels of government. They really do him dirty in the film. Um, and also they get rid of his mustache, which I do not understand, but that's a separate grave. Um, like why do that anyway? But like, even the justification that Stimson does where it's like, oh, we got to drop it so we can save lives for the invasion. That is not how they thought about it at that point. And that's an important aspect to understanding the targeting choices. It was not a question of bomb or invade. It was bomb and invade. And that's, that's, the, the idea that it was a choice is a post-war myth propagated by these some of the people involved to make it more, uh, uh, in some ways, justifiable feeling like, oh, we had to do the lesser of two evils. It's just not true. And so that's a part where I don't think I don't know if Nolan knows that, but he sort of ends up reestablishing a sort of mythical version of this. Um, there's other aspects about that scene that I don't like as well. The whole Stimson saying like, oh, I went to honeymoon in Kyoto, cross it off the list. That is not how that episode went down at all. And also, I don't think he actually took his honeymoon there. Uh, but like, like it's a much more there's a lot of richness that it's not that they didn't include it because it's not enough time. I'm mean, Obviously, that's part of it. But I'm not sure Nolan actually knew there was richness he was missing. He He tweaked it in ways that I think make it a little bit misleading in certain ways. So like that, that, that bugs me more in some ways than even the like deleting of the post-war because that, that's a sort of, there's other things like Einstein does not go to, does not get involved in this at all. Right. Like the, he's not part of that. I enjoy the use of Einstein um, as if he is a sitcom neighbor that, that appears at random times to dispense wisdom and advice. His face is over the fence. Yeah, exactly. See the, the bottom half. The, yeah. the 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 scene like in the middle where the like the car drives past and he's just there for some reason. Right. <laughs> was very right. odd. But like I but I also like as a filmmaker or as someone like watching a movie, I understand why Einstein is there for the purposes of storytelling. What Einstein right. means uh, and like the 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 like immediate like icon that he is and like why you would include him. Um, even if it's not historically accurate. Agreed. I don't, again, I don't want to do the, like the Neil deGrasse Tyson thing and go through and be like, actually Einstein had a different hat on that day. Right. Like that's not an interesting use of expertise and it's not a good way to think about film and art. Again, agreed. I, I don't really care about the Einstein stuff. It's like, that's like a nitpicky but I do sort of care about the why they use the bomb stuff because yes. that's sort of important in a broader cultural sense. We we think through the atomic bombing story as a especially Americans, but like for Americans, we teach that not for its own sake, but because both that's sort of a referendum on American conduct, but also 
because we use that as a way to talk about when is it okay to kill civilians, right? It's like, oh, if it's the lesser of two evils in some big way, you know, then it's a just war thing. And the fact that that isn't how they framed it at the time complicates that a bit. Will you explain how you teach that moment in your class? Because I think it's pretty, I think it's interesting what you do. Uh, I'm trying to remember what you're referencing. When you're, when you ask you, you, Oh yes. Yes. Okay. I get you. Okay. Sorry. I I teach it. I take like a whole hour. I take multiple hours to teach this. So um, the, one of the things I do is instead of asking the question, should they have used the atomic bombs? If you ask that question to people, they have a, like a knee jerk quick reaction, right? Because they learned at some point how they feel about this and they just like go to that circuit in their brain and it comes out. And they either base, they, they usually reiter- reiterate something like, well, you we had the option of invading and that would cost a lot of lives, or you could use the bombs and in the war. And so, like, lesser of two evils, even Japan probably ended up better off for that done. Like, neat, tidy package, which they don't realize is like, that's a take, but it's not like it didn't like fall out of the sky. That that take got invented in 1947 by Henry Stimson and General Groves and Truman and a bunch of other people. Um, what I like to do to emphasize that there are like more variables involved than use or not use is I like to just even phrase it. Uh, uh, one is I sometimes phrase it as, is it OK to drop two atomic bombs on two cities in three days? that already dices it up really finely. And you start to say like, oh, well, actually use the atomic bomb doesn't, there's a lot of options there other than like use it the way they used it in the war, right? You could imagine using one in a demonstration. You could imagine having a few more days in between to see what happened. You could imagine not using them on cities, whatever. Um, The other way is to just ask it as a moral question and instead say, under what conditions is it morally acceptable or ethically acceptable for a state to burn a hundred thousand civilians to death. Like, and that's an ugly way to think about it. It gets you out of that historical framing that leads to the knee jerk. And again, I'm a historian, so I want you to have the context as well. And I'm not saying there are no conditions under which that wouldn't be justified. Uh, But I think that like that gets at the more core ethical question of like state behavior than thinking about it in terms of invade or bombing and things like that. Like, that's really what we're talking about. And there may be conditions under which we think, yeah, there are some conditions under which that's acceptable. But it should be like a pretty high bar. Well, and I think it's also important, uh, the context of that decision from the military perspective is important. You have to realize that uh, the Allied military had already been incinerating civilians for months, yeah. Right. They had been drawn like the, the difference to them was uh, this is grotesque, I think, uh, but efficiency. Right. It was number of bombs uh, at the at the moment. Right. Because we had been we you know, the UK firebombed Dresden and we had been firebombing Japan already. Right. It It's complicated because, I mean, it depends who you're thinking about at that time in the military. Like there are definitely people who saw it in those terms. Like this is a very efficient package for firebombing. Hooray. And then there are people who did not think of it in those terms. They thought of it as like something, the term they used was special. They thought of it as something special. It is not a regular military weapon. It is a political weapon is a psychological weapon. It is a propaganda weapon in a way. Uh, It is a weapon that has different 
requirements. So like the mili- like one of the people in the military, uh, uh, General Arnold, who was a very high level guy, he explicitly wanted there to be an order to use the bomb by somebody because he thought like, look, man, I'm not going to be told later you use the bomb. This does not seem like a regular weapon. So I want there to be explicit in writing from a higher authority that I'm going to use this bomb because I think this is special. A military or civilian authority. He wanted it. He didn't really say. And the actual authority for that order comes from the Secretary of War and and uh, General Marshall, the like head of the the military, Uh, not Truman, incidentally enough. But like it's like a combined this question of the military and civilian that gets worked out like that's actually what the Kyoto thing is about. The military want to bomb Kyoto and they come back to it many times. And Stimson says, you're not going to bomb Kyoto. And the military explicitly says, I don't think this is your call. That's an operational decision. And Stimson says, it's going to be my call. And and this is not an operational decision. It's a political decision. And he actually has to get Truman's help in solidifying that. And like, to me, that's what makes that so interesting. And, you know, I'm not expecting Nolan to go into all that detail, but like, that's a really subtle point. And in the end, the civilians win on that even though it's mostly a military operation until after the war. And then that becomes a major point of discussion in the post-war. Anyway, the point is some of the people see it as something really different and some of the people see it as just efficient and it depends who you want to talk about. There's also people in the military side, or at least the like secretary of war Stimson who don't like the firebombing and think that it's immoral and try to stop it and cannot. And I just put that out there because it's, it's complicated, right? It's, it's not like everybody thought one way about it. Yeah, it's funny how these complicated and weird decisions kind of get solidified into myths uh, and stories uh, and like received wisdom after the war, sometimes decades after the war. Um, Another moment in the film that I know has been uh, kind of picked apart by nuclear experts and people who like know the story is the the Gary Oldman Truman scene. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. What did did any kind of meeting like that actually happen? Did Truman call? you know, call him a crybaby, uh, and was, was Truman the one really that ordered and is ultimately responsible for the dropping of the bomb? So there was a meeting and it did go badly. And we have sort of different accounts of what exactly happened and was said in the meeting. And, uh, and I don't blame Nolan. Nolan, in a lot of these cases, he took various people's accounts and made them into the account, but like, we don't really know. Like, I'll give you one example. In the meeting, again, spoilers, uh, Truman asks, what should be done with Los Alamos? And Oppenheimer says, give it back to the Indians. To my knowledge, the only person who claims that Oppenheimer said that at the meeting was Edward Teller. Like, that is, that's a like, I don't know if he really said it at the meeting, right? Like, that's a, hmm, I don't know, right? Like, anyway. Put a pin in Teller. I do want to come back to him. Yeah, we'll come back to Teller. But like, uh, yeah, there was a meeting and, and I don't find it implausible that some kind of exchange like that happened. It's interesting to think about what the exchange means. I don't think if your average watch viewer watched that exchange, they would see it the way I do. I think they would see it as Oppenheimer, this deep soul is deeply troubled and Truman kind of is offended by this and makes fun of him and wants him out because Truman is not troubled. And that's, I think, false. 
My next book, by the way, is about Truman. So, haha. Uh, coincidentally, come out in 2025 with any luck. Um, but Truman was himself deeply troubled by the use of the bombings and the civilian lo- loss of life. He was deeply affected by this. He did not like officially order the bombings. It's a whole other question of what he understood about the targets. Did he understand that there would be large civilian deaths? My take is no. There's a whole story about that. That's what the next book is about. Um, but like he wasn't super like at ease about it. Uh, but he, he was quite peripheral to the decision-making that was involved as one way to think about Truman. He is not like sending an order. He does not make a decision. All that's a myth. Um, he is told what's going on and he's like, great, sounds good. But his understanding of what's going on is I think a bit limited anyway. Um, in that perspective, the, that interaction looks really different. It's not Truman doesn't care. It's more Truman is irritated that this guy is taking credit in a way for what happened when Truman himself believes that ultimately the buck start, stops here. The commander in chief is the one who takes credit, whether or not he's totally in on it or not. And Oppenheimer sort of taking credit of things is interesting to unpack as well. There's this great Oppenheimer at the end of the war makes this statement um, that's very famous that the physicists have known sin and it is a knowledge we can never forget. And there's another scientist, not in the movie, John von Neumann, who has worked on the bomb and is much more hawkish than Oppenheimer in many ways. And he had this quip, which is sometimes someone confesses a sin in order to take credit for it. With directly saying like, yeah, yeah, okay, buddy, you're like saying how sad you are, but that's because saying how making yourself responsible for the bomb means that you get to be number one atomic thinker, Mr. Policy guy, and you get to push these policies that you want and you feel morally superior and et cetera. And, I, and von Neumann isn't having any of it. And you can think of that in the context of the Truman and Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is going to Truman and saying like, oh, I'm so beat up about this, Mr. President. This was something I did. And Truman is saying like, you don't get to claim grief. I am the one who is actually, you're just a technician. Screw you, buddy. That's a more complicated, and I'm not saying my reading is the best reading. All of these are like, how do you get inside the heads of dead people at a meeting based on accounts that you're not sure even happened? Uh, like it's an interpretive act no matter what you do. And Nolan's film, he, he explicitly says this, is an interpretation. I get that. That's fine. But uh, yeah, anyway, it's a tricky thing. Uh, you, you also hit on something else I, I think is really interesting and want to talk about. Uh, the Manhattan Project is enormous. Um, yeah. It's like this enormous country-spanning um, partnership between scientists, the military, industry, this incredible project that takes thousands of people. Uh, why then does Oppenheimer become the guy and not, not talking about just in the movie, but in our popular imagination that is responsible for the atomic bomb when so many other people were involved. Why have we picked him? It's a really good story. It's actually one of my gripes in the movie is it makes Los Alamos and the Manhattan project seem small, like Los Alamos in the movie, all the meetings take place in one room. They all they have like one room where they can do anything, which is so weird. It's also a room that has a particle accelerator magnet in it for no apparent reason. Like, why is the magnet in this room? That's not a particle accelerator. That's just the magnet. Anyway, whatever. And 
then they have one scene where they like walk through a hallway and every it, it's like it's like there's like eight laboratories and in every one somebody's like picking up a microscope right as they walk by and then they do some aerial shots and there's like 12 buildings like this site los alamos had like thousands of people at it and it's not even that large compared to some of the other sites like oak ridge and hanford had tens of thousands of people the whole manhattan project had about 500,000 people in it over its course at a, at its peak, it had like 125,000 people. And then over the course of people leaving and then new people being hired, it comes out to about 500,000 people. It's huge. And it's a huge deal. And in the, in the show, it looks like, ah, oh, it's a, it's like 20, there's no more than like 24 people at Los Alamos visible at any time. I tried to count maybe the scenes after Hiroshima, they, they pack in like another 20, but like it somehow feels really small. And at one point they actually talk about the size and Grove says this cost $2 billion and had 10,000 people. It, it had 10,000 people at Los Alamos. Like it had an order of magnitude more people than that in the whole. Anyway, I, that was a pet peeve of mine because I get it. They had to condense a lot. They don't even have like some of the pivotal scientific challenges shown. It looks really pretty straightforward in the film. It was not straightforward <laughs> in life. Um, anyway, what? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, anyway, Los Alamos is small. Why do we take it to be the center? Why do we take Oppenheimer to be the figurehead? Um, I, I think there's a mystique about the physicists. And I also think Oppenheimer in the 40s and the 50s, and now to a degree, he represented like, what happens if you have something that looks unimportant? at the moment, like theoretical physics before 1945 theoretical physics before 1939. Anyway, theoretical physics is like no applications that anybody really cares about or really minor ones, really specific ones, right? Oh, we can make some new therapies maybe. And then afterwards it's like what determines the fate of civilization. And we like, this is the Prometheus thing, right? We like having a character who takes this obscure knowledge and makes it into the knowledge of life and death a father of the bomb, hooray. And he even, they even name the weapons, at, you know, you know, he has the little boy, right? Like it's a paternal sort of thing taken a little too far. And even within the question of who's important for the Manhattan project being successful, you wouldn't necessarily put Oppenheimer as number one. Groves is probably number one. Uh, but even then, you're really obscuring the like the number of authors. But again, we like that. We like having a figurehead. I'm not getting on us as a culture for wanting to identify a person with an organization. Oppenheimer was important. He was the top scientist on the whole project. And if you think of this as mostly a science project, then it makes sense to identify him. If you think of it as an industrial project, then somebody like Groves becomes more important because he's coordinating all of this work. Yeah, I was going to say, why not someone like Fermi? You could put Fermi. I mean, Fermi's important. Fermi isn't running like everything. So you could choose him as a really important guy. <laughs> you can center the project around anybody <laughs> if you want to. Um, none of them are going to be right. There's various degrees of wrongness. Uh, another question I had, and this kind of speaks to something I know that you've written about quite a bit, is... Um, this is also the birth. The Manhattan Project is also the birth of like the secret security state in America. Um, how the hell 
did they do did they have 500,000 people working on this thing and keep it as locked down as they did for as long as they did it seems like it any re- t- like we can't we can't not talk about uh you know there's 20 guys in a room maybe possibly probably not looking at aliens right now and we can't keep that locked down like how what were the, the what was the context back then that made this possible um i mean it wasn't easy and it wasn't i, I it was a little easier than it would be today because information is not quite as uh, transmiss instantly transmissible, but it wasn't easy. And of course they didn't keep it totally locked down. We know that Soviets had spies in it. Like, like they, they totally didn't keep it from them. Um, and they didn't keep it out of the newspapers. They only sort of relatively kept it out of the newspapers. So they didn't have press censorship. They, or they had voluntary press censorship. And what that meant is if a story came out that they didn't like, they could usually keep it from being syndicated. Um, and so that was like one way to to keep things down. But there are crazy stories that came out from that time. One of my favorite is in a Cleveland newspaper from this guy who went on vacation in New Mexico, this reporter, and stumbled across Los Alamos and wrote a whole story about how like, oh, there's a secret project. They don't want you to know what it is. If you try to go there, there's guys with guns. It's being run, I hear, for rumors in town by this guy named Oppenheimer. They blow stuff up occasionally. Isn't that interesting? And like General Groves like lost his mind he tried to get the guy drafted, interestingly, but the guy was like in his 60s. So like not possible, but like they were able to keep it limited to this one Cleveland demographic uh, 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 and keep it from spreading. But it was really hard. The, the major technique they used, and they talk about this in the movie a little bit, is uh, compartmentalization. Uh, you, The number of people who actually know the full scope of what they're doing is out of that 500,000 is maybe 5,000 or so, like just on the order of magnitude, right? Like 1%. And then each of those people, you tell them exactly how awful the consequences are going to be if they talk about it. Um, And you ideally keep the people who are working on the really sensitive stuff in a place where you can sort of monitor comings and goings like Los Alamos. That's why they create Los Alamos because university campuses are very porous. Um, and then you follow up every rumor and leak and and you just try to tamp it down. And that's really what they spend most of the war in terms of like security doing. They aren't chasing down spies. They are are chasing down rumors and leaks and they have a hell of a time of it. I mean, because even the people who don't know what they're making an atomic bomb, they do know that they work at a giant secret war factory in Tennessee where lots of stuff comes in and nothing goes out. And that seems interesting. And some of there's people in that area who see this as well. And they report this to their congressman. And then their congressman says, hey, what are you doing there? And then they say, we can't tell you, congressman. It's secret. And then the congressman threatened to reveal the whole thing unless they're told. And then they have to get the secretary of war to call them. This happens multiple times during the war, including with Senator Truman. Like they they barely keep it together. And by some measures, don't keep it together again, like the Russians. If the Germans and the Japanese had been looking for evidence of the Manhattan Project, they probably would have seen it. The interesting thing is they didn't look, not in any serious way. And also their intelligence was pretty bad about in the United States. But like, it's not magic. They like barely keep it secret for two and a half years. And they were always aware that it was going to be possibly break out at any moment. So in a sense, I don't know if it's worse today. Like that assumes that we... Like, they kept the NSA pretty secret for a long time, right? 
And unless you have Snowden leaking things, a lot of what they did would have been not necessarily totally secret, but more secret than it was. Like, it doesn't take a lot for uh, a secret to get out there. Um, and yet at the same time, some these organizations, they're pretty good at scaring people within them not to at least go to newspapers a lot of the times. Look at how they come down on a, like a, a load of bricks on these these whistleblowers and leakers and uh, uh, who, who've come out. I mean, there's a reason they do that. I mean, even if it's something small, of course, within the government, they leak all the time as a political tool. And you don't usually get consequences of that within the Manhattan Project. They didn't do that because the people who knew in the government were pretty committed to the sort of surprise factor. But yeah, I don't know. It, it, I guess what I would say is it's a lot harder to keep something that secret. Sometimes people bring this up and like, oh, if you could keep the atomic bomb secret, you could keep alien secret. You could keep fake moon landing secret, like maybe for two and a half years, but like not for like 50 years. Right. Like, yeah, I think the timeline is important. Yeah. Because eventually, eventually things start coming out, uh, you know. And they, you had a pretty dramatic um, end of secrecy, right? And the point at the end of this was always to use this thing. I mean, well, we can argue about that. Uh, but, 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 you know, you don't build the weapon and not use it, I suppose. I mean, that's how the, they, the people who were, once they got to the Manhattan Project phase of it, it was assumed it would be used in some way. What that means changed a bit. Um, but by the time they actually start to get close to having a real weapon that you could like put in a plane, they are like focused in on dropping it on Japan. And, and there's no, there's no, uh, uh, big deliberation over that. Um, I want to ask here at the end, before we transition into talking about Barbie, uh, two of the kind of bigger public controversies about the movie. Uh, the yeah. first being the decision by Nolan to not show the effects of the bomb on the Japanese civilians. And I was sure. wondering, like, what you thought of that decision. Do you think it's the right decision? What do you think they could have done instead? So Nolan basically only shows the movie through two perspectives, mostly Oppenheimer and a little bit Straws. And he puts everything in black and white when you're in Straws, basically, perspective. And one can certainly... That's a choice, right? And that meant that he couldn't show things that weren't Oppenheimer didn't see, and Oppenheimer did not see the damage of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So he has to sort of imagine it. And I thought the way they did that was relatively effective. Um, I think any attempt to... You, you could imagine even more disturbing ways of doing that. You could imagine him imagining people in the streets. You could imagine him, some of these horrors from, I mean, for me, the really disturbing stuff when you read about uh, Hiroshima, it's not the corpses. Corpses are dead. They're fine. They're, they can't hurt anymore. The, the, the injuries, that's a big deal. The sicknesses, that's a big deal. But for me, when I read these accounts from survivors, the stuff I end up getting really hung up on psychologically, it's, You've survived, you're not that injured, or you're only a bit injured, and there's people trapped under rubble who are calling out for help. Yeah. And you cannot do anything. And it's like, save my child, save my child, save my child, and then the fire gets them. And, like, that's the disturbing, that feeling of helplessness while you hear people suffering. And 
to me, that that sort of thing is way more effective than even screams and dead bodies, uh, you know, or Terminator Two style turning into a skeleton, which didn't happen. But like that's that's like the stuff that if I were trying to hit people in the gut, especially with children, that's how you hit people in the gut. Um, I was actually more the, the 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 aspect of the bomb that I was least. I thought that was okay. It's certainly disturbing and horrific and okay. It's fine. Like you could imagine him doing different things, but how do you want to do it? I thought the Trinity test, I think was underwhelming to me. Really? And yeah. I was not impressed with his fake Trinity uh, explosion. I, I, it looked like he set off a conventional bomb and then in compositing tried to make it look like a bigger bomb than it was. And as somebody who's looked at a lot of nuclear test footage, that's not what it looks like. Like you can't do that. It doesn't work. Uh, the, the, the scale matters. Right. And like, it was very, I would have preferred him honestly not showing us the full thing and showing us only the close-up shots would look good of the just walls of weird flame and showing us the reaction shots. And then maybe some final giant mushroom cloud thing, but like, and it, it just, it, to me, it was underwhelming. I, it didn't make me think, now I'm become, by the way, I have my shirt on. I'll show it to you now. I, it did not make me think, now I'm become Death Destroyer of Worlds. This is my Barbie uh, uh, shirt. Thank you. My wife bought this off Etsy. Um, it, it didn't inspire all. And I also thought also their use of this quote in the movie was so weird. Like to have it basically be an orgasm. So weird. Um, and like a memory of an orgasm. That's so weird. Okay. That's a take. That's, uh, well, that's you know, that's the little death, right? It's an original. That's a Nolan original. I'll give him credit for that. That was not what I was expecting. That's I've never seen anybody else take, treat it that way. But um, yeah, I mean, that to me is to me. I thought that the parts that got the scale well, the the big one is the the occasional the thing at the end with all the missile trails that did I think good effective work. Actually thinking through what he is really afraid of. I think that works well. I thought the Hiroshima bit was yeah, plenty disturbing. Um, and I appreciated that about it. The, the, the other thing that um, people have been talking about online that is kind of a, a, a bit of a controversy is, and it's, it's kind of fascinating because even as someone who like studies nukes, I was not super well versed on this until a couple of weeks ago when I met the downwinders and got to hear them talk. Um, and we took, uh, you weren't on the bus to the Trinity site when we went, right? I'd already been. I'd seen it. I had other things to do that day. Fair enough. It's a, <laughs> it was a three-hour bus ride, and we talked to people whose families had lived there and talked about like the generations of cancers and what happened to them uh, and how they've kind of been left out of the story. And I was wondering, um, what do you make of the Downwinder story, and do you think that something like that should have been included in the film? Um, obviously they filmed in New Mexico, uh, and I know that the downwinders had tried to talk to Nolan and, and gotten nowhere is my understanding. I mean, if you take Nolan's conceit that it's all through Oppenheimer's point of view, then there's no downwinders in the, because he doesn't see them. He doesn't think about them. They don't really believe there are any at that time. They are very, they track the cloud for sure. And they know that it goes, the radiation levels go up 
in some of the communities because they have people in those communities tracking the radiation levels. But according to the standards of their time, they thought that those exposures were essentially harmless. Today, we would not, we think those are actually pretty significant exposures. Um, and we wouldn't think that was a cool thing to do. Uh, whether or not those downwinders were significantly harmed is a very difficult technical epidemiological question. I don't weigh in on that. I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, they certainly uh, uh, feel harmed. And in some cases, we can decide that that's good enough for something like compensation. That's kind of what the existing compensation structure is for other downwinders. You, you sort of basically have to say, I or someone in my family had one of these things happen to us, which is on a list of things that are sometimes associated with radiation exposure, like certain types of cancers. And I lived in this county and we acknowledge that we can never really know whether or not that cancer was caused by that exposure. But the moral thing to do is to say, well, it might have been. And so I'm entitled to something. And should the people who are downwind of Trinity who have a similar situation also be entitled to something? I think, sure, morally. Uh, but can you actually establish that any of the issues they had are Everything is frozen. Oh no, it's really frozen. Hold on. Well, we can still see it oh, here. You're fine. All right, fine. Sorry, mine, mine, mine was was doing funny things. Anyway, um, should we give them compensation? Like, I I think so, but like that's a policy question, and that's a question about like historical reconciliation. It doesn't matter. The technical side of it is always going to be so uncertain that you're never going to resolve it technically. It's just not the nature of the thing. And so getting hung up on that is is not the right approach. Yeah, I was kind of shocked when I was talking to them uh, to learn. I mean, downwinders get screwed over all over, right? Uh, But that they have essentially received almost nothing Um, when when people across, across the state line have gotten something. Um, and it's all tied in with like New Mexico politics and how much of the nuclear industry still run, you know, still is run out of that state. Uh, and, and it's like that's a whole separate podcast. And yeah. You know what? Maybe we should actually do that because I know the downwinders <laughs> would come on and talk to me. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to put a pin in that. And I think that's probably a good idea and let them tell their own story. Um, all right. Before we I've got uh, I'm going to ask you about Barbie. But before we get to that, I just I have because I was watching the movie. I said I have to ask Alex about this. Um, uh, was Teller as villainous and evil as he seemed to be uh, in the movie? I think they do a good job with Teller. And I don't know if he's villainous and evil. He's Teller. And and like he is a passionate guy with extreme positions and he believes them honestly um and like they testified they had showed his testimony in the movie which is i don't think it's awful is it backstabbing to a friend maybe but like he's pretty honest about how he felt he doesn't think oppenheimer is a spy he he just is, finds him a little incomprehensible man so do i i get it um i'll say the funniest thing about teller for me I saw a review, I think it was in Rolling Stone, and they were complaining about how the actor played Teller and how it was like too over the top. And I was like, oh, man, because I thought this guy did Teller perfect. That's exactly how Teller is. You, If you're playing Edward Teller correctly, he is shouting in like with an accent and he is banging on the tables and he is sweaty and he is like a loud mouth. And like, that's Edward Teller. That's that's the guy. 
you can look up videos of him doing exactly this. He that's how he was. That's what everybody said about him. And uh, but like I get that it's jarring. Like yeah, he's he's a jarring guy. But I thought that was a funny disconnect between the historical side and the film side. Is the like ah oh, this guy he's so distracting. I know he is. Uh, I thought they did a teller fine. I mean, Teller is not an evil guy in my mind. He is a guy who has strong beliefs about what do you need to do to be more secure in the world. They are not my beliefs. Uh, some of his technical ideas are bad. Um, he is interested in what he's interested in. Uh, he did find Oppenheimer's take on this on the H bomb incomprehensible. And he was asked to testify about that. And he did. He was quite wounded by the fact that the scientific community sort of rejected him after that. And he felt it very painfully. And whereas some of the actual, there are real villains. I think Louis Straws is about as evil as they put him in the film. He didn't do everything they make him do in the movie, but they get the essential point of this guy across. He's not a, he's an odious character. Um, and Teller is kind of a, he's a complicated, extreme guy who I don't agree with a lot of his ideas, but like, I don't think, and he sometimes lied about stuff or misremembered stuff and whatever, but I don't think he's like an evil guy. Uh, I would watch a Teller. Is there a Teller, is there a good Teller book about him? Yeah, there's, there's a really, the, the Peter Goodchild's The Real Doctor Strange Love is pretty good. Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to seek that out and listen to it. Uh, Emily, did you have a question before we move on to? Yeah. You know, as a historian and a science historian, the entire time I was, you know, watching the movie, I was thinking about other movies about scientists. I was thinking specifically about the theory of everything that came out a couple of years ago about, you know, ready, uh, Eddie Redmayne is Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about a shitty tweet that I saw on the internet being like, wow, this is not going to inspire anyone to become a scientist. Yes. And I think, you know, obviously that misses the point, but I feel like it misses the point in such a spectacular way. Cause like this is, you know, it's a movie about scientists, a movie about guys writing on blackboards, nobody that necessarily, you know, coming, coming from the world of science, thinking about it as people just trying to do science and then suddenly getting swept up by their choice. And as well as, you know, the situation with the world into the military industrial complex, how do you think this movie does in portraying these scientists and also, you know, just thinking about that, like, is this a movie that's supposed to make people want to go into science is supposed to make people want to become nuclear physicists or, or get into this whole field. To me, it just seems like not only such a misreading of looking at the study of physics and the study of nukes, but also just, I don't know. It it really rubbed me in such a way. That's a really good question. Like there's a whole genre we have of inspirational science films, right? And sometimes the scientist is like flawed, right? Like beautiful mind, but it's still like he's he's schizophrenic, but he's brilliant still, right? And he everybody cheers, right? Like it's that kind of thing. Yeah, and and this is not that kind of movie. Except for the very beginning, interestingly, and even that's a little problematic with the whole poisoning your trying to kill your tutor thing. Um which we don't know if that actually was literally happened or not, but either way, it doesn't matter. Um, I don't think it's supposed to be that kind of movie at all. Uh, it is not 
meant to inspire be about like celebrating scientists. Um, even though he uses a lot of those tropes in the beginning, which is again, like Oppenheimer staring off into the distance intently and like seeing into the infinite and seeing the electrons and visualizing it in his head. Like there he's like taking from that playbook though. He also makes Oppenheimer really kind of complicated and messed up and insecure and not that good at certain things. And that's good. I appreciate that aspect of it. Um, I think Nolan's goal is to, if I were going to imagine what he would say to this, it's, it's to make, like, if you think about what's the big theme of the movie, it is kind of Oppenheimer, brilliant guy, builds this weapon for whatever reason, then gets pushed out of the questions about how to use the weapon, then get, tries to give his opinions on, on policy, and then gets punished for it. And that's that's meant to make you question whether, you know, responsibility of the scientists, um, uh, whether or not building weapons is a good idea. I think he has possibly, you know, people working on AI in mind uh, when thinking about this, like what is your responsibility vis-a-vis policy and use of your creations and whether or not if you make something that you think is going to kill the whole world, how should that weigh on you? And that's a different movie from one that's trying to inspire anybody to be a scientist. I don't think that's Nolan's goal at all. I think he's trying to inspire scientists and engineers to think more critically about the uses of their work, which I support. I think that's a great idea. And that's a very that is actually something Oppenheimer himself would have supported, though, perhaps not through this movie. Uh, the way it was, but that's one of his big arguments after the war is that's what he means when he says we have known sin. He's he's like, we have to be take responsibility for these things. And my sense is that scientists and engineers today are not thinking about that as much as ones in the Cold War used to. I teach STEM students, and they generally, the ones who see themselves as getting high-powered, high-paying jobs in the future, they find ways usually, not always, to basically say, look, man, I just need a job. And if that's at Raytheon, cool. And if that's at, you know, Monsanto, cool. And like, if I wasn't there, somebody else would be doing the job anyway. So whatever, I don't have responsibility, which is a terrible personal moral model. And I get why they do it. I'm not criticizing them. But like that more much more seems the zeitgeist of modern STEM aspirational people you do stem not to discover the secrets of the universe you do stem because you want that economic security and you know that if you are a humanities major you'll quote unquote start working you know be a barista which is not true by the way but whatever um most philosophy majors go on to get law degrees anyway whatever right like like i get that that's a product of our economic moment um I think that's more like Nolan is pitching at that mentality than he is trying to inspire people to get into science for better or worse. Uh, I don't have a good transition to asking you about Barbie. It's great. It's a really fun movie. It was a really fun movie. Did you I had a lot more fun watching Barbie than I did watching Oppenheimer twice? <laughs> yeah, I would imagine Barbie <laughs> is like much more fun. Emily, I don't like seeing Barbie after seeing Oppenheimer, I think is the move. I know that yeah, don't do it the way I did it. I mean, again, the way I did Barbie and then Oppenheimer just as a result of, you know, when I was able to purchase tickets, you know, similarly buying tickets to see Barbenheimer in the New York area is, is an extreme sport in and of itself. <laughs> you really have to. And also, 
Okay, this is like a very minor thing. I did not want to be in the front row for either of these movies. Yeah. And at some point you have to decide, do I want to see this in the order that I want to see it and be in the front row for like the Trinity test? Or do I want to be in the back row for the Trinity test, which is what I did. <laughs> so um, that I was in like middle middle of the theater for, for Barbie and back of the theater for Oppenheimer, which I think was, uh, you know, all things considered the the best of all possible choices I could have made given the situation I put myself in. So Alex, as we leave uh, Oppenheimer behind and, and move forward into Barbie, what were your, what were your thoughts? Did you just generally like it? Did you have a good time? Did you have big emotions? I had a good time. I mean, I didn't dress up. I sort of wish I did. The people dressed up for Barbie looked like they were having a much better time than anyone who went to go see the Oppenheimer movie. Uh, uh, and even people who weren't. Uh, and this was in New York. We, I, I saw Barbie in the morning, so it wasn't like a big theater. Uh, it wasn't crowded. I liked Barbie both because it was well-written and well-paced. And, you know, Greta Gerwig is great. I'll watch anything she does. But, like, I like that it was subtly... I like that it it it, it tried to thread that needle of being... Using Barbie, critiquing Barbie defending Barbie and like doing that in a way that was sophisticated and you come out of it with complicated feelings about Barbie and consumerism and commercialism and gender roles. And I like that. The only, I I thought it was so cringe how many people are apparently like offended by Barbie's not that extreme critiques of, of, of the, the, the trap that our gender role, gender roles can be. I will say the only thing I really took offense to and thought was just a cut to the bone when they cut to the, the ineffectual husband, who's a guy with brown hair and glasses on the couch, doing his Spanish Duolingo. That was my trigger wig. I left right here. I laughed so hard. That was, that's me every morning. Like that's what I do is my Spanish on Duolingo every morning as a white guy who husband was on the couch. Like, he was anyway, so I, he, he was so proud when he got the word kind of right. Yeah, I know. I know. I was very uh, I thought that was a, I was like, ah, oh, Jesus, man, I am a stereotype. But anyway, I thought it was really interesting and I really liked what they did. The performances are great. The, the, the writing was crisp. The, oh, geez. Everybody's great. Ryan Gosling. Great. Margaret Robbie. Great. Like I came out of Barbie, like telling all everybody I knew, like, you should check out Barbie. And then they would say, like, what do you think about Oppenheimer? And I would say, ah, geez, that's a harder question. I don't know. I'm like, like, it's an interesting film. It's complex. It's a real film film. But like it's it's a harder sell. Uh, Alex Willerstein, thank you so much for coming on to cyber and walking us through this. Uh, what's the name of your, your secrets book that people should go and read? Oh, restricted data, history of nuclear secrecy in the United States. Here, yeah, cool. It's got an awesome cover. Look at this awesome cover. Look at that secrets. Oh my gosh. So good. Uh, you can look them up. Uh, if you go to nuclear secrecy.com, you'll see all my stuff blog.nuclearsecrecy.com for all your nuclear secrecy needs. Alex, thank you so much for coming on to the show. All right, we're going to transition to talking about Barbie. But before we go into that, I do want to say there's a bunch of questions in chat uh, specifically about the people of New Mexico and the downwinders and some of the uh, the displaced like Hispanic landowners that then like we're doing cleanup of beryllium without PPE. Uh, I literally know some of the people I met them recently that know all about this. 
I'm going to reach out to them. We're going to have them come on to tell the story themselves. Uh, uh, hopefully next week, if I can get them that fast. Uh, so we're going to we're going to address that directly with some of those people who can answer all of those questions. I think it's a great idea for an episode. And we should definitely do it. And I'm going to send that email as soon as we get off this stream. And with that, Alex and I are going to fade away. And we're going to bring uh, Emily back in and then bring in Gita and talk about Barbie. Thank you again, Alex. Happy to be here. All right, Cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, cyber listeners, here we go. We're going to start talking about Barbie now. So, yeah, Oppenheimer talk. Yeah. So I... I'm still, I'm still just thinking about it. Like, I don't know. <laughs> you just letting the nuclear. All of, all of my thoughts are really tied up in the question that I asked. And like, I think Alex's answer really hit that on the head for me. And just like. <laughs> ethics in science. And like. It's. Um... The ethics of of everything that we do and everything that we're working towards in our professional lives. And, you know, we what have, does that mean? We have done yeah. an incredible job in this country of disconnecting ourselves from uh, the meaning of our work and our lives. Haven't we? We really have. Yeah. I think that's what American exceptionalism really is at the end of the day is, 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 is um, severance the Apple TV show. <laughs> Yeah, going down to the nightmare factory and pushing a couple buttons and not really thinking about what those nightmare buttons do. Uh, it's just a button. It just clicks. It just makes a clicky noise. It's fine. Whatever happens on the other end of the nightmare button, it is a-okay. I think uh, okay. Severance, wonderful TV show. I'm very sad that, uh, I mean, I want... It, that, that's one of the ones that I feel the loss of most acutely at the is moment. Is it not returning? Well, it's it's the writer's strike. Oh, yes. Okay, so it's, it's one of the ones the production is extremely paused. I think they got a certain way into it and then said that it's um, at the moment paused indefinitely. That makes sense. Yes. On on a, a brighter note, as we start to transition to speak Nagita, uh, Righteous Gemstones was renewed for a fourth season. So did you see do you see the most recent one? I did. I watched it in the airport, which oh. was a choice that I made. <laughs> I was so that one was so exciting to me because I was I was watching it. And I was like, wait a minute, is that uh, Sturgill Simpson? Sturgill Simpson, <laughs> yeah. It's like, that looks like Sturgill Simpson. And then at the end, they have him sing a song, uh, a cover of the Gatling Brothers, uh, All the Golden California. Uh, and I lost my shit. <laughs> yeah. That was the, that, uh, it must have been in January or maybe early February of 2019, was like the last big public thing I did was I went to a Sturgill Simpson concert. That sounds like it would be so much fun. It was, it was incredible. It was incredible. Uh, and it was like, I was in there because we, we, we started having news of the pandemic. Um, and I was like in the bathroom and like, nobody's washing their hands. And I was like, Oh, we're in trouble. 
we were in real trouble. And it turns out we were. We were in terrible yeah. trouble. <laughs> well, speaking, I Gita and I were actually at the last concert that I went to before the pandemic, which was a show here in Williamsburg for the band Priests, which no longer exists. But um, that was that was a nice time before everything collapsed. But anyway, moving on to brighter things like plastic and feminism, question mark. <laughs> uh, Barbie was wonderful, right? I saw it last night. It was it was incredible. But I think um, we should bring Gita in. And you and Gita yeah, should talk about Gita Barbie. In. And, and again, as we're chat is talking about this a little bit, just want to make it very clear once again that this is going to contain spoilers. So... All ye who fear spoilers, um, mute the stream, um, slash listen to it as a podcast later on. Hello, Gita. How are you doing? I think we've got you. We're we're also going to be testing everybody in the chat. And are are you good, Gita? Yes, I'm good now. Emily, I need to make something a little clear to you and to Matthew both. Uh, I have not yet seen Barbie. (laughs) So... Uh Oh. Yeah, I think I mentioned this to you when we were scheduling me for the show, but I haven't seen I Barbie. I don't know what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> I think because what I want to actually talk about um, is more about less about the actual film mm-hmm. and more about this cultural moment that we're having. Barbenheimer <laughs> around going to the movies around Barbenheimer as a thing and just about like why 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 does everyone <laughs> why do, why does everybody have so much so everybody has so many feelings about both of these movies which makes sense but so many pe- people have a lot of feelings about both of these movies as an abstract thing not specifically relating to any of the things in the movies aside from oh this is a movie about barbie and this is a movie about nuclear weapons <laughs> So uh, a little background on Barbenheimer, the phenomenon, the the cultural juggernaut that we are now experiencing. Uh, I actually have to say a sentence, which I'm not sure you anticipated me saying, but Emily Lipstein, do you remember the film Tenet? So I, re- I know that it exists. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is, I believe this is the first Christopher Nolan movie that I ever saw. Oh my, God. oh my God! You're because an adorable baby. <laughs> I, I get nervous about. I get nervous about action and about weapons. It's understandable. understandable. I'm aware of the movie Tenet. I I feel like you have very strong feelings about Tenet. Oh, I love Tenet. I, love Tenet. I don't like Christopher Nolan, generally speaking. I I actually kind of despise the man and the man's films. But uh, I wrote for Motherboard back in the day an article about movie theaters during the pandemic and a. Thing that was happening uh, at that time was that Christopher Nolan was promoting Tenet. It was the middle of the pandemic, and he was trying desperately to get people to come to theaters to watch this movie, uh, mm. which was at that time a horrible idea. And I'm yeah. glad that what ended up happening was controversially Warner Brothers, which is the studio that. Christopher Nolan has worked with for, I think, basically all of his movies. Uh, I mean, from the Dark Knight onward, he would uh, produce all of his movies with Warner Brothers. Uh, they, against his wishes, 
pulled a three oh didn't pull a theatrical run, but decided that all of their films through the pandemic would be simultaneous premieres on what used to be called HBO Max and is now called Max and and in theaters. And Christopher Nolan was incredibly angry about this. Right. Yes. I remember when when this all you know this all started. What by what what I mean by that is when we started talking about Barbenheimer and seeing these movies as a thing. I said to Matt specifically, "I'm going to see Oppenheimer at home. Mm-hmm. I want to sit at home on my couch and watch Oppenheimer because that is where I will feel the best watching Oppenheimer in the same way <laughs> that I watched blanket. All Quiet on the Western Front yeah. on my couch right after watching RRR also <laughs> on my couch." <laughs> Uh, RRR is an incredible movie theater experience you ever have the chance I know. yeah and it's so, so good I'm, at the end of the day I'm glad that I saw it in the theater I thought it was a lot of fun to see Oppenheimer in the theater but I think the the part about that that was more fun not just being in the theater because you know it was a packed house in Brooklyn I sat next to some like annoying guy who kept like have like a very loud bag of chips or something <sighs> like that I'm I get annoyed easily at this kind of stuff Same. but People uh, coming from Barbie into my Oppenheimer screening, they were all already drunk. It was a 1 p.m. screening and they were just laughing awkwardly every time Florence Pugh was naked. And it was it was a little distracting. But, you know, the reason why these two movies came out on the same day is actually due largely to uh, Warner Brothers pettiness, personally. So say more about that. So Oppenheimer, as you may notice, is not. Uh, does not come from Warner Brothers as a studio. After that happened with Tenet, Christopher Nolan was so angry about that deal that he took his next movie to Universal. Um, so when they scheduled, I believe Oppenheimer had their release date first. And when Barbie was announced, it was not meant to be on the same weekend as Oppenheimer. I, I don't think, but it was announced to have the same release date. This was a move from Warner Brothers to uh, take some petty revenge against the, a director who has been lucrative for them that took their his work to a new studio. Uh, I, this backfired badly, I would say. Uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer, the cultural phenomenon came on uh, from people on the internet noticing how diametrically opposed the subject matter of these two movies are. Like, they couldn't be more different in a lot of ways. Barbie, I mean, down to, like, Barbie is sort of a... It is part of the marketing arm of Mattel in a strong way. Mattel mm-hmm. and Barbie and Warner Brothers all had a multi-million dollar advertising slate that came out along with it. I'm sure you've noticed if you scroll Instagram at all, every single makeup Instagram artist is doing Barbie looks. You know, my my favorite thing about that too is all of the brands that clearly did not get permission to use the branding <laughs> of Barbie. In the same way that we get around the Super Bowl, people not saying the phrase Super Bowl because yes. that's copyright, po- yes. copyright, and saying the big game. Yes, <laughs> it's so funny. They say things like Dream House or Malibu, which is very very funny. I mean, there was also, though, I haven't seen a soundtrack, like, track listing so star-studded, like, for, since, like, Men in Black, basically, is what it feels like. Truly. Since Will Smith was wrapping the plot of the movie over the movie credits. I have not seen such a... And let me just say, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but the Lizzo song, Pink, that is on the Barbie soundtrack is literally that, but for Barbie. Yes. And that happens in Barbie. It is like, it is like, um, we need to bring it back. 
I think I think the word is diegetic, where it's like it's mm-hmm. actually like within like yes. it's yes. There we go. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that's a spoiler, but it's they do a really good job with that, and there's a reprise of it that is not on the soundtrack that that's also so is very good within the context of the movie. That's adorable. Yeah. So you know that this was Warner Brothers really trying to dominate this day, and I mean. Barbie came out on top in the box office. It's like a it's a 200 million uh, after five days, which is a that's that's MCU numbers. Basically, that's mm-hmm. like wild. Barbie was supposed to be big, but the Barbenheimer phenomenon really juiced the box office entirely. Oppenheimer was hoping for the opening weekend. They were projected 50 million opening weekend. They ended up with 75. And after five days, ended up with 100 million. It's a huge box office for both these movies. Um, I believe this was the one of the first box offices weekends where two movies opened with over eighty million dollars. Um, ever, I think ever. Yeah, and it's it's pretty significant because this was not intended to happen in this way. This was supposed to be Barbie sweep, but mm. people desired to go to the movies to see both of these. The meme took off so much that it is now a phenomenon that studios are trying to replicate with other films also, but will not succeed. Uh, what, have you seen, you know, chatter about future double okay. releases in that same way? The Paw Patrol movie and the new Saw movie are coming out on the same day. So Saw Par- Patrol? Yes. <laughs> Paramount <laughs> Pictures has been tweeting about this Saw Patrol and it's just like it only works if the movies are good or if people have a, a, if there's crossover between the two audiences. Right. The other thing is Barbie, while it is family friendly, I would say uh, family friendly, it's family friendly in the same way that like Raiders of the Lost Ark was <laughs> where yes. you're going to have to turn your kid around when the guy's face starts melting. But um, it's it is also Greta Gerwig makes movies for adults. And yeah. Everybody likes Barbie. I played with Barbies. Uh, everyone I know played with Barbies. So the appeal, the the audience of, of that movie is basically everyone. Uh, Oppenheimer is an R-rated adult movie, very specifically for adults. Those mm-hmm. are two audiences that do have some crossover. Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig are also like critically acclaimed, very well respected filmmakers. Uh, who is making Paw Patrol? Who is making the new Saw movie? Like, no one cares about these features. You can't just make something out of nothing. This occurred because uh, people have a strong desire to see well-crafted movies made by craftspeople that really care about making movies. Yeah, and I think also the fact that Barbie is an IP movie in almost can be ignored yes. here. Yes. Like, and I know that, you know, Mattel is now has now greenlit Uno. Yeah. And like uh, there's Barbie. a Polly Pocket movie coming. Polly Pocket, excuse me. Yes. Lena Dunham's uh, Polly Pocket. Yeah. <laughs> Lena Dunham's uh, Polly Pocket. There's going to be the gritty Daniel Kaluuya uh, Barney movie from A24. Why there is was also doing that? recently that like also gritty Winnie the Pooh movie that came yeah. as a result of like Winnie the Pooh entering the public domain question mark. I remember that was a thing last summer. Um, but I think we can talk a little bit about IP and, you know, specifically like this is where we talk about the MCU as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But what about the MCU as the Mattel Cinematic Universe? <laughs> well, I think um, there was an article in Variety where uh, they described the production of this movie and uh, 
Mattel has now, there's going to be a, an attempt to make over a hundred movies based off of different Mattel properties, including Polly Pocket, including Hot Wheels, including basically every toy you've ever heard of. Um, mm. But the specific thing Mattel told Greta Gerwig was that they did not want a movie that sold dolls. I think it's pretty obvious that they are using this movie as an advertisement anyway. Um, but the movie that they wanted was a good movie about Barbie. And I think that makes it strongly... Di- it actually reminds me so much of the very first phase of Marvel. In fact, the very right. first Marvel movie, which was Iron Man. Um, mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Like I, I've been watching a lot of interviews with Robert Downey Jr. because of Oppenheimer, because he plays Strauss. And he talks about... He talks about doing the first Iron Man movie with Jon Favreau, both of them coming off of movies that didn't perform very well and really wanting to do a film that could sort of write their own careers. And the way he describes making Iron Man is very strongly different from how directors that work with the MCU and Marvel and Disney describe working on Marvel movies now. You know, right now, Marvel movies are essentially, you know, the the Russos really, they, they enjoy this process and they just said, you know, there's there is like a, a degree of freedom in making Marvel movies, except you have to make your movie conform to specific things that they will tell you are immutable and have to be in your film. You can do anything else except these things have to be in your movie. And um, none of that existed when there was just Iron Man. John Favreau could make a John Favreau movie and he did. And Robert Downey Jr. just Robert Downey Jr. all over the place. And he did. There was no demands being placed on. They could just make a really, really good movie about Iron Man. And I think that audiences flock to movies that don't feel cynical. Audiences flock to movies that feel like they're the result of uh, artists working at the height of their creativity. And it's it's interesting to me, though, to to watch this because... Uh, Gerwig and, you know, sources close to Gerwig in this article also said that, you know, it's, it's not exactly a welcoming environment in Hollywood right now for, for people who are, who really care about the craft. But the, the only kinds of movies that get the budget that Barbie did are the ones that belong to intellectual property, like, you know, Mattel, uh, et cetera, et cetera, or our, our franchise remakes or our superhero films. And that isn't really great, but Greta Gerwig was able to work within those parameters in order and make still make a movie that audiences really connected with, that seems really personal, and that seems to have something to actually say about Barbie the doll and the experience of being a person that plays with Barbie the doll. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Sorry, go on. I, I was cutting you off. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Um, it's. It is still depressing, though, because that means that the only people that can make movies about things that uh, that have the degree of craftsmanship, you know, I remember reading about the production of Barbie and learning that there is a shortage on pink paint internationally because <laughs> of, of this film. I, everyone's heard those stories about Greta Gerwig enforcing all of the crew to wear pink. You know, it's at least one pink item of clothing. It could be like a bandana or a T-shirt. Uh, but she really got people focused on you know there's all these handcrafted backdrops and hand-painted backdrops the there was a uh, a feature i watched with architecture today 
uh, their YouTube channel, which is so good, where they explore the Malibu Barbie dream house that they built and they they handcrafted all of these props, you know, it's a level of detail that takes a lot of money because you have to pay yeah. people to do that and to make these things. And it, it sucks that the only kinds of movies now that get this, this level of detail paid it in and it'll be the budget to give them this level of detail are ones that are, are basically also <clears throat> part of the marketing wing of Mattel. <laughs> Yeah, what I I think the first thing that I texted Matthew when I got out of the theater was practical effects are back, baby. Yeah, you know, and that rocks. That absolutely rocks. It rocks that Chris Nolan and Greta Gerwig are on the same level on this one, um, and it's it's exciting. But it also is uh, you can see how the landscape for cinema is also compacted. You know. It's um, with the writer strike and the the SAG AFRA strike. It is clearer now more than ever how much money the studios have versus the craftspeople that make these movies. You know, it's it's a uh, IATSE almost also went on strike. They managed to, to make a deal, I believe. Although we'll see what happens. And the Emmys are now postponed indefinitely, which is fascinating. Yeah, I just got that notification too. Oh my God, just, I. I mean, it's it's definitely good and it's definitely disruptive in the, the best way. But it is you can see how clearly through this phenomenon, like there's just very little opportunity for people to to make movies with the level of like money that you need to make a movie unless you are willing to be an advertisement for a brand. Um, that isn't to say that I think Greg is cynically making this film. It's just like there's no other options. Yeah. And, and, you know, as someone who's seen it and I really enjoyed it and I can't wait for everybody, for you and for everyone who hasn't seen it yet to watch it. It's like you go in thinking, you know what it's going to be. And it kind of is that, but it also very much isn't. Mm -hmm. And that's what I feel like Greta Gerwig really succeeds at here is giving you exactly what you think you're getting, but also something entirely different. Um, which is, I think, also where a lot of the backlash has come from, where people I uh, I'll get into this a little bit more in a minute because I, I want to bring something else up first, um, which is there was a movie that came out recently. And the fact that I am forgetting which movie it is speaks to the fact oh, the point that I'm about to make, which it was like some sort of sequel. It might have been a Marvel movie. It might have not been that just like totally flopped. Mm hmm. Was it Morbius? It might have been Morbius. With it might Jared have been Leto. Written, yeah. It might have been. And it's just like that flopped terribly. Yeah. And these two movies that theoretically, you know, one is an IP movie. Yeah, there's an there was Ant-Man. Just like, yeah, The Flash. Everybody's saying all of these different movies. Indiana Jones. And yeah. I think the fact that there are so many people in chat giving different movies that I honestly think that I'm thinking of right now. I think it was Indiana <laughs> Jones that I was specifically re trying to reference. Yeah. But these sequels are really not working anymore. Like they do yeah. in some ways because, you know, everyone's going to want to go see Indiana Jones. It's the summer. You want to sit in an air-conditioned movie theater. I mean, I definitely... Someone got me, my friend Alex Jaffe got me tickets to The Flash and I did end up just spending a couple hours in an air-conditioned movie theater watching one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And that's beautiful to me. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, literally, I went to the Whole Foods by BAM and I bought some cookies and like, you know, took a, took a hit of my vape and then walked into Oppenheimer and was like, this rules, man. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> oh my God, I also saw Oppenheimer at BAM. Great theater. 
Um, Great theater. Love. But yeah, no, I think you're completely right. I think actually Disney is very aware of this. Uh, I don't know if you've been following any of the Marvel television shows, but as a person who writes freelance now, I'll tell you the readership, the interest from readers in these shows is simply not there. I tried right. pitching things on Secret Invasion to different outlets and there's no interest because people are not watching them. I don't even know what that is. Oh my God. And I consider like, myself as like aware of things, but you say those words and I'm like, I love this Mad Libs of, <laughs> of a bajillion dollars being funneled into, you know, uh, yes, God. You know, pocket. I believe Bob Iger, who's head of Disney, it's, uh, did say that he does think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is oversaturated right now, that there were too many movies and there are too many television shows and there's diminishing returns. I think any reasonable person could have told him that this was going to happen. But it's been clear to me that since Endgame, audiences are not returning to the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a way that the Disney hoped that they would. Uh, and we're transitioning to a new phase of Hollywood, but it does also not seem like like the only market forces that are able to produce a blockbuster film at this point in time. These other huge companies are now sort of uh, realizing that they have IT, IP potential, I would say. Mm-hmm. Can I read? Well, I think about two specifically. Oh, sorry, Matt. I just want to read something on that point real quick. If I can, if I can interject briefly, um, this is something I think I I had emailed or I, uh, I texted you about. So one of the things that's coming down the pipe is the, the hot wheels that's made by JJ Abrams. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And this is from a New Yorker piece speaking specifically about that. The there, they had an investor meeting uh, where they're showing all the new IPs um, and apparently they introduced a short, uncomfortable video in which J.J. Abrams struggled to describe the new franchise. Quote, for a long time, we were talking to Mattel about how to about Hot Wheels, and we couldn't quite find the thing that clicked that made it worthy of that Hot Wheels title. Then we came up with something emotional and grounded and gritty. A script has yet to materialize. <laughs> Good Lord. You see, it's hard. It's not easy. You can't just, I mean, I think this, the, the Saw Patrol phenomenon speaks to how Hollywood always learns the worst lessons from box office success, right? You know, they don't look at this and think people like movies that are good. People like movies that are thought-provoking. People like movies made by people who care about the movies. You know, Chris Nolan can be a really annoying guy, but I remember watching him uh, on Side by Side, which is Keanu Reeves' excellent documentary about the transition from shooting on film to shooting on video. Then It's really, really fantastic if you'd like a history of that. And then there's one point in the documentary, where I might be over-exaggerating a little bit. I watched it many years ago. But I remember Keanu is is off screen, really pushing Chris Nolan, like, why do you care so much about shooting on film? Why do you care? Why do you care if anyone shoots on video? Blah, blah, blah. And Chris Nolan gets a little mad at him. And he's like, you would care if someone was doing an inferior version of your craft. <laughs> you know, it's uh, he puts his money where his mouth is. He's he does truly, truly understand cinema and want to make movies that deserve to be seen on a screen that's two stories high. You know, Greta Gerwig is the same. You know, I don't think anyone would accuse her and Noah Baumbach, who is her partner that helped write the script. Uh, I I love describing Noah Baumbach as Greta Gerwig's partner. Also, I think that's a <laughs> great thing to do to that man. Um, like, no one would accuse either of them of not caring about movies. But when you see something like 
oh, Quantum Mania or The Flash, especially, which was which also had this phenomenon of of really being the IP movie. The, and there's a moment in The Flash where they use CGI to resurrect uh, George Reeves. It, it's disgusting. It's really there's hurts. specifically tell us why that specifically is really gross. Tell us why yeah. the George Reeves Superman is uh, in poor taste. George Reeves ended up taking his own life um, in part because he felt like he would never be able to escape Superman. He did not want to be Superman and then to resurrect him from, uh, you know, archival footage and puppet his corpse around. That is maybe the most disrespectful thing I could think of to do to him. And it's also it does tie into what's going on with the actor strike right now, where actors are on strike in part because they want guarantees from studios that they won't do stuff like this with their likenesses. So it's you watch that movie, though, and I can tell the people that made that movie want it to be good. You don't spend all that money making a movie and you hope it's bad. But I don't feel the same level of connection between the artists and the source material as I did, you know, when I watched Oppenheimer and as other movie goers are seeing when they watch Barbie. I mean, another clear reason why J.J. Abrams like is not going to be able to make a good Hot Wheels movie is that Barbie is like a cultural phenomenon that expands way beyond the doll. Like Barbie is like even before this movie, people understand Barbie on a level that is like guttural, like it's in your soul. (laughs) Barbie is such an indelible part of our lives. There are very few brands that have that. Um, I think this summer has been a a summer of different IP movies that are are trying to capitalize on brands. There's a Flaming Hot Cheetos movie where uh, (laughs) that story ended up being not even true, which is so funny. I'm sorry. I had a friend, my 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 friend of the show, and and uh, also Vice Vice News social uh, denizen uh, Evie Kwong was visiting New York and saw on the subway a poster of the Flamin' Hot Cheetos movie, and she's like, "Is this real?" And I'm like, "What does real mean to you?" <laughs> There's a lot of ways you can answer that question. Yeah, but no, the 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 story that a janitor made up, the Flaming Hot Cheetos thing, that's the thing that that just man just made up and then was able to take to different sort of uh, public speaking engagements. Uh, and, and then there was a part of the White House. I know. It's like if you ever thought the U.S. government was uh, efficient or smart, I think you should ask yourself why they invited this man to the White House. Like, let's just... Let's just like start radicalizing yourself just uh, using the Flaming Hot Cheetos movie. Now, there's also the Blackberry movie, which I, I actually respected a little bit. I heard Glenn Howerton was was very good in that movie. It was a small independent feature uh, with Jay Baruchel and Glenn Howerton. Uh, oh. And that one looked goodish, but it came alongside Flaming Hot Cheetos and the Nike Air Jordan movie and the Tetris do. movie. <laughs> You know, like I'm saying words and uh, just nothing evokes an image more strongly in your mind. None of those brands than Barbie does. And I even want to even challenge that a little bit. Thinking about something that, you know, we've talked about extensively um, in, in other venues. So Disney's Star Wars Hotel closed or is oh closing. Oh my God, Yes. So um, I actually know a lot about this. <laughs> oh, I trust me. I am sure. And I oh, know yeah. we are watching oh, yeah. the same YouTube channels. <laughs> it, 
Yes. So for those of, of you in the stream who might not be aware of this, Disney basically launched this like land cruise hotel where you would pay like more money than many people will ever see in their lives. To, that's not true, but they pay like a stupid amount of money mm-hmm. to be on a cruise in a hotel that's not actually a cruise that you can't leave. That's immersive question mark. Yeah. And then you go to the like the Star Wars land at Disney and then you come back and there are like alien guys and stuff and like you know peanut butter sandwiches that are called something else that are supposed to be alien peanut butter sandwiches and obviously they could not get enough people to constantly be booking stays at this hotel and therefore it will be closing i believe at the end of this year if not even sometime this fall I think it's sometime this fall, actually. It's, it's coming up pretty quick. So the, uh, the hotel was modeled after a, what is called a Norwegian LARP model. So there's a live action role playing. Live action role playing, you might, uh, have seen it in television shows like, uh, what we do in the shadows, which has a great arc with a, a vampire LARPing group. Um, and in the American model is more, is really, uh, sort of focused more on, uh, Dungeons and Dragons type dice rolling, et cetera, et cetera. The Norwegian LARP is all about putting you in an environment where actors can give you quests and you are like, everything is incredibly seamless and you are, you, you believe and feel like you are actually there because no one ever breaks characters. And um, it, it is a, a gamified experience but one that feels very subtle. And I, I can see why Disney would want to have an experience like that at their parks. And I can see why Star Wars feels like the right experience to have, especially because they have Galaxy's Edge, which is a huge park. So you'd think that a Star Wars themed hotel would be a perfect fit. But uh, there's a lot of problems with it. I know that we've talked about how it wasn't very kid friendly on, on the launch, especially in terms of food. They only had alien foods and the kids don't want to eat that. They want to eat pizza. Um, there's also, you know, the rooms were very, very small deliberately to force you to interact with the characters in the hotel, but that's not very comfortable. And in order to get the most out of the hotel and the, the various storylines going on in the, in the hotel, you had to basically be up and about and interacting with characters constantly. And you know, the way that Disney people plan their trips, it wasn't very conducive to uh, their desire to wake up at nine in the morning and get in the virtual line for all the rides they want to be on and then maximize the amount of time they're going to get to be spending in these environments because it costs a huge amount of money. Um, I do think Star Wars does fall into, though, the same sort of category of the MCU and that it's just become oversaturated since its return. You know, I liked the first, I liked The Force Awakens and I liked The Last Jedi. I did not see the rise of the, the rise of Skaz with Skywalker or whatever the last one is because it, I got a plot summary from people and it didn't sound very good. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, my dad got mad at me because he was waiting for me to come home to watch this movie and I was like, they don't even have anything for Finn to do, dude. Like, I don't think you're going to like it very much. Uh, but, since then, there's been a lot of television shows for Star Wars also. And Star Wars has done a little bit better on TV for Disney. But mm-hmm. it does... I, I, people got burned by a whole bunch of movies that don't feel good. And uh, movies like Solo that didn't do very well. Rogue One, which you know has now become the basis for Andor, which is excellent. But also didn't do very well in box offices. There's diminishing returns on all these things. 
You can't keep feeding audiences the same thing and expect them to come back over and over and over again. You know, the box, the blockbuster phenomenon began really with Jaws and Star Wars. Uh, and you can see if you look back historically, it's because those movies were offering audiences something they'd never seen before. That's that's my only desire when I see a movie that is made with this much money. Show me something that I have never seen before or else you're kind of wasting everybody's time. Yeah. And so it's people want something that they'd never seen before, but also to pivot a little bit, people also want something maybe question mark to preach their values at them. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've I've read some interesting things on uh, the the FOMWAD subreddit, which I get all my news from, uh, about uh, women taking their their boyfriends and spouses to Barbie and asking them questions in order to see whether or not they have good opinions on feminism. <laughs> which I I think that's a good litmus test, honestly. Uh, I mean, if your boyfriend refuses to see Barbie because it's too girly, I think you should break up with them. But that's just me. Uh, I'm not even a girl. I just feel this way. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No, it's, it's interesting because it's like, you know, I think Barbie does speak, does do a good job in speaking to everybody in the way, you know, there's a lot about gender in that movie. Obviously. Um, I think that Greta Gerwig really, you know, hits you over the head with a lot of the like neolib, you know, feminism, like being a woman is hard, which it is, but also like, let's, let's, I get it's a Barbie movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it really is interesting to me because I feel like it, both of these movies, both Barbie and Oppenheimer, really speak to this moment of people wanting media to speak to them and to have a very strong position statement and a very strong moral statement that you that leaves that is left with you. Once you leave the theater. And I feel like Barbie kind of has that maybe a little bit. Oppenheimer is a little bit wishy-washy on that. And I think intentionally so. But people really don't like that. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. People are very, very mad at the movie for not having a stronger point of view on dropping the bomb or the war or genocide, which I understand why you'd want to watch a movie that definitively says um, committing mass murder is wrong. I get that. <laughs> like uh, That's a reasonable desire. But at the same time, I do find it interesting that mo- people look to movies to be uh, didactic in that way, to, to be object lessons in morality. When this is a movie that takes Oppenheimer takes great pains to show multiple perspectives on Oppenheimer himself, and to not necessarily come down on a, a particular moral condemnation or valorization of the of the man. Uh, I think this is pretty much in line, though, with Nolan's work historically. He is a wishy-washy guy. He is not very big on grand moral statements. And he I think he thinks he is being subtle. But to me, he just comes off as a centrist uh, when you look at his body of work, especially the Batman movies. Um I do believe that if you if there's been a decade of movies that are extremely upfront about who the good guys and who the bad guys are dominating box office like the Marvel movies have 
You know, those are movies where the bad guys may make good points, but there will always be a point where they have crossed moral lines and must be disposed of in some way. I Mm -hmm. think if that's the audience that is going to these films, then, yeah, they're going to be a little frustrated with Oppenheimer, who uh, really at the end of the movie, you're just like the atomic bomb is a land of contrasts. Yeah. And I mean, one of the most interesting things that I've witnessed with reactions to Barbie is as as uh, viewers of the stream, listeners to the pod and my good friends, Gita and Matt will tell you, I have a, a ridiculous interest in like conservative women on the internet and like how they do their stuff online. Oh, yeah. There's this one magazine, internet magazine called uh, Evie Mag that is very like conservative, like classical femininity, um, which is just like a dog whistle for like transphobia and like just, you know, all of all of that good, bad stuff that we hate. They were obsessed for weeks with Barbie, as was, I think, much of the Internet before it came out and before reviews of Barbie came out. And then once Barbie, the movie came or people came out and people kind of realized that it did have critiques of feminism and did have, you know, talking about gender and talking about like, okay, so Barbie is this, but is, is Barbie, what is Barbie for? What Mm -hmm. was Barbie made for? Who is Barbie for? Who is Barbie? The end of Evangelion, but about Barbie. Exactly. Then all of these people, Abby Shapiro, Mm -hmm. Ben Shapiro, siblings, not, you know, um, all started having a lot of feelings about how actually this is a bad thing versus leaving these question these topics as open questions and leaving these things as things to explore is tantamount to I don't know whatever bad stuff that they want to assign to these topics. Yes, I did. You, I mean, I've seen the screenshots of, and I, I dare not press play on any video that Ben Shapiro is in because he it sounds like Kermit the Frog. Uh, of uh, he apparently burned a whole bunch of Barbie dolls because he was so mad about the movie. And I, I, th- the mental image I have of this man is of him. Uh, can you imagine like this little guy going into a Barbie movie and just getting angrier and angrier <laughs> while the movie's going on? The Barbie movie was so fun. It was like a very fun experience to be in a theater with a bunch of people and just having a nice time. And also the thing that I really enjoyed about seeing both movies was just that like everyone was there. Oh, yes. It wasn't just like I feel like in a lot of Marvel, even going to a lot of Marvel movies, too, it'll be like, OK, you know, all all the Marvel guys are going to be there. And then you're just like in the theater or whatever. No, this is like everyone. This is like old people, young people, yeah. people of all races. It's just like super like everyone wants to be there and have a nice time. It was, you know, um, like so much fun just to go to the theater and see everyone in their little outfits. You know, I, have you seen that video of the woman who made a, a reversible jumpsuit that she could switch from black to bright pink uh, specifically for Barbenheimer? Like, Genius. right? <laughs> The like yeah. level of creativity and enthusiasm. This it does remind me of the first phase of Marvel because that was another. I saw a midnight showing of that on my college campus in the theater where everyone snuck the uh, forties uh, into it and then drank them during the movie. Uh, you could hear them all the empty glass bottles rolling towards <laughs> the screen as the movie went on, and it was one of the most fun times I've had in a theater. Like to me, like the essence of going to the movies is being among other people that are also as excited as you. 
and uh, oh sorry go ahead oh it's just like barbenheimer really gives people that opportunity one because you like you you will be spending all day at the movies you know for that you will be there for a minimum of like what five hours oppenheimer's three hours long and barbie is i'm sure at least two so you will have your brain turned into soup by the time that you are out of there but you got to really commit you got to really want it people dressed up when i went to bam half the staff was dressed in their little ranching outfits and the other half was dressed in pink it was so cute everybody there was taking pictures of themselves next to the signs for david my partner david made me take a picture of him next to the sign for oppenheimer he thought i was dressed up but i was just wearing all black like i normally do (laughs) (laughs) see That's just life. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was like, I wore the one pink shirt that I had to, um, to Barbie and then was at Oppenheimer wearing my, my movie theater sweatshirt, which was all black. And I'm just like, I'm I'm doing it. I'm doing it big. (laughs) (laughs) You know, lots of my friends had little, you know, Barbenheimer parties. Like they went and they like met up with people and got brunch and like made a whole day of it. I can't remember the last time so many different kinds of people like not just comic book nerds were were making such a big deal over not just one movie but two movies on the same day and that makes me yeah. incredibly happy exactly and it's like i want this going forward with the movies i love capital t capital m the movies yes. and going to the theater and doing that whole thing and i agree with you i do not remember the last time that I had that kind of a cultural event at the movies. Yeah. And I mean, it might have been uh, Avengers, Endgame, and Infinity War. But yeah. even then, I was pretty fatigued on Marvel stuff. I did not see Infinity War in theater. I, I saw Endgame because it was like, I've been watching these movies for 10 years. I might as well see the last one in theaters. That was... I, I have not seen most of the Marvel, Marvel movies. But I, I saw Endgame at Alamo because it was the thing to do. Yeah. And also, you would see it at Alamo, so you had like a constant refilled Pepsi and like <laughs> yeah. popcorn as yeah. you're like laying on this couch for a bajillion hours. You know. You know, it might have been worth it to see Endgame in theaters, uh, or not Endgame, uh, Infinity War, the, the the one before that one, because uh, my partner saw it in theaters and he told me the moment where Spider Man got blipped. And all the little kids started to cry and ask their parents what happened to Spider-Man was something he'll never forget. So they had to all the parents. And that's like, He's the coming back. Like, when, uh, Spider-Man's coming back. Don't worry. Which there's one where Loki dies at the beginning. Like Thanos yes. like kills Loki for the 15th time. Um, uh, I, I saw it in the theater and there was a woman next to me because it happens in the first like five minutes. Mm-hmm, he gets mm-hmm. executed she started sobbing and did not stop sobbing for the next three hours. She was so oh, fucked up. Oh, that poor woman. Oh, I want yeah. to know what her AO3 username is. <laughs> and she got, as soon as we were out of the theater, she got on the phone and called somebody for emotional support about watching Loki die. I was oh. like, that is so, that is like, for as much as we bag on Marvel movies, we're all exhausted with it now. That is capital T, capital M, the movies right it's there. It's so true. You know, I just wish all movies made someone feel that intensely. You know, I really, really do wish that. I'm so happy to see it come out for Barbie and for Oppenheimer because I feel like the the blockbuster movie as it exists right now there have not been very many good ones. You know, I I know we've talked about this a little bit uh, when we used to chat more frequently, but there it is. 
you know, I, I look at the slate. Uh, there's something so fun about a hot day and getting a huge soda and a huge popcorn and seeing just a, a bunch of explosions and having a good time. You know, most of the movies that like purport to offer you that I just feel like are not as entertaining as they used to be. And it's not a matter of nostalgia, although I did watch because I didn't I didn't even see Raiders of the Lost Ark. I saw it for the first time like a month ago nice. and I was like, holy shit, this movie rules. Um, but it is like I think about like even the spectacle of Michael Bay. I'm not even going to say that the Transformers movies are good because they definitely aren't. But he achieves a level of spectacle and a level of detail in that spectacle that very few filmmakers can pull off, you know, except for maybe people like Christopher Nolan. Ambulance, was- Ambulance, the new Michael Bay is good, though. Yeah, I've heard it's really, really good. I, I, it flopped at the box office. And again, you know, it just feeds into this like kind of depressing contraction of Hollywood where there are very few directors that can command butts and seats in the way that they used to be able to, you know, and now we're seeing Greta Gerwig emerge as one of those directors, which is good for her career. I'm very excited what she'll use, how she'll use her newfound, you know, cinematic power. But, you know, even someone like Wes Anderson had his like a biggest box office opening ever with Asteroid City, which I thought was a very fun, very good. Like, I think maybe his best movie when I really think about it, his most ambitious movie in terms of what it's trying to say. Um, it, it's uh, it had his biggest box office opening ever for Wes Anderson, and they put it on video on demand a week later. Yeah, that you was know? that was so wild to me because people were still seeing it. I saw it in a the theater. The theater I was still full. I haven't seen it. It was well. You can watch it at home now. Yeah, I, but maybe. here's the thing. Maybe I don't want to. Right. Like, and and I think that's like what I think I learned most this past week. I was about to say weekend, but that's you know I saw both of these movies in like a five hour speed run on Wednesday evening. Was that going to the movies rules? Yes, it does. It's one of the best activities in the world. Nothing is better to me than gasping or crying or laughing at the same time as like a hundred other people in a movie theater. I That is a definition of joy to me. And I think it's so the experience of being in the movie theater, it is it makes you feel so connected to other human beings. You know, in the beginning of my Oppenheimer screening, I did hear people opening cans that they had bought uh, of beer in the movie theater and they were getting drunk and laughing awkwardly at, at uh, <laughs> Gene Tatlock mounting uh, Oppie <laughs> while reading the Bhagavad Gita, something that deeply offended my Indian mother. Uh <laughs> She's pissed. Uh, oh, I'm sure. <clears throat> yeah, I, I had a two-hour conversation with the, my mom and my aunt about the wedding. And at the end, they were like, and then did you hear about Oppenheimer? And it's like, mm, I don't want to talk about this. Um, but it by the end of the film, I just felt do- so deeply connected to the people that I spent three hours in the dark with. You know, I felt as all feeling the same sense of awe that we felt at that sort of ending sequence of the film where Oppenheimer thinks to himself about the chain reactions he set off by creating this bomb, by submitting himself to the United States government in order to create a, a massive weapon. You know, we all walked out of the theater silently and reverently. And that that is an experience that is so rare these days, but I feel like brings us all a lot closer to each other. You know, I, I think another thing that makes these movies so exciting for moviegoers is even though you watch Marvel movies and even though the best ones do offer you that, they don't really give you a lot to chew on about the world. Yep. You know, 
Oppenheimer and Barbie, even though Barbie is an IP movie, they are both about the world and they ask you questions about the world that we live in. And they don't necessarily answer all of those questions, especially Oppenheimer. It It is something, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the phenomenon of people asking when um, the new uh, Beyonce album came out, the most recent one came out, where it's a, it's a disco album and it, it runs in a perfect loop. So you can just play it over and over and over. And people online were like, I can't stop listening to this album. Like, why do I not want to listen to anything else? That's how music is supposed to be. That's how music is supposed to make you feel. That's how an album, a perfectly crafted album, is supposed to land in your subconscious. There's a lot of fluff in the world. There's a lot of content. There's more content than ever. But not as much of it that comes from artists that want to deeply engage with the audience. You know, I it makes me a little sad that the lesson that Hollywood will not learn from this is that if you give directors that care about films like a budget that is astronomical, it's very, very likely you will receive a return on your investment that will make you happy because people like to see movies that are good. You know, the lesson that they have learned from Enter the Spider-Verse and everything everywhere all at once is that people like multiverses. When in fact, people like movies that are made by people who care. Yep. People like human connection on the screen. Yeah. People like art. They just do. Yeah. Um, people don't want to watch Paul Rudd walk in front of that weird LED green screen for <laughs> yeah. two and a half hours. God, you know, people people don't like... People like a spectacle they can repeat also. You know, yeah. what makes the original Star Wars films from George Lucas so fascinating. One, they really were something that people had never seen before on that scale with that level of detail and craft. And also, it's like a you could go back to those movies and there's little things you could notice that aren't necessarily apparent the first time around. It's not an in- incredibly complex story. You know, it is just... Uh, God, what is it? It's not Rashomon, but it's like a, it's a oh, uh, it's hidden a, fortress. It's yes, it's essentially hidden fortress. You know, he's very upfront about that, and uh, it's it's a very clear you know hero's journey arc for Luke. But just looking at all the little, I think they're called greebles, like the little tiny details on those models of the uh, of the different spaceships that they have in Star Wars. That there's like an infinite amount of times you can turn to that. Like as demonstrated, because people do return to those movies an infinite amount of times, even something just like Jaws, you know, like Jaws is a much less complex movie, uh, but it is still like a sort of formally perfect blockbuster and that it is designed to be seen on the screen that big in complete darkness with other people who can also gasp at the giant shark. Emily, can I bring you back in here? You can see yeah, us out. Please. Or do you have other I questions? Have, I have two I have two quick things to say before we fully wrap this up. One is practical effects are back in a big way, baby. That's right. <laughs> and like I think with all of those movies that we're talking about, that's, you know, I will harp on this literally any day and every day. That's a lot of what they have in common. Yeah. And I know I am personally a big CGI hater because, I don't know, I, I couldn't give you a reason why. I love physical objects and I love people that craft things with their hands. Um, I think that that's great. Um, I, I just think that it adds something to the movies that really likens it in a way to being in a theater. 
because it really feels real in ways that as much as CGI tries, it feels extremely fake and extremely artificial. I um, completely agree with you on that. I, the funnest thing about Wes Anderson movies for me is watching the credits and then seeing the amount of carpenters that he has employed because he's building everything bespoke, every single piece of the set for his films. I think it's great. It's and, and the thing I want to close us out on, Gita, is that you texted me the other day asking me if I had seen all of the Barbenheimer fan fiction oh on God. AO3. Okay, so there's a Barbenheimer fan fiction on AO3. Of course, the Barbenheimer phenomenon would also cross over into uh archive of our own, the fan fiction uh, website that is ubiquitous now. So... People ship Barbie and Oppenheimer. That's basically it. I just opened the Barbenheimer okay. tab and there's so many. Uh, essentially, the idea, a lot of the, the plots of these fics is that Barbie works as a secretary at Los Alamos and then Oppenheimer recognizes her her scientific mind and falls in love with her because, of course, Barbie can do anything. So, uh, you know, Barbie can also be a theoretical physicist. There's theoretical physicist Barbie. And there's not a huge amount of fic, but there's like way more than you'd think. The 30 different people have written Barbenheimer fanfic, which is wild to me. Man. Well, I love Gita, that. I'm going to, I think we could close it out on that. Thank you for joining us. No problem. To talk about Barbenheimer. And I can't wait to hear what you think of Barbie when you see it. I will let you know everything I think and feel. Please. And and Gita, I hear that you are launching a podcast. Oh, yes. I mean, if you're interested in how intellectual property can shape the form of mediums, uh, I'm doing a, a podcast about the comic book series 52, which was something that DC Comics used to run weekly uh, using uh, for one of their big crossover events. And, you know, if you're a comics fan, you know that they love to write comic books about the continuity problems in order to solve them. And this is a podcast all about that phenomenon that is now breaching comic books and also leading out into other forms of media like movies. So it's going to be called 52 Pickup. It'll launch in August, probably late August. So keep an eye out. Well, I for one can't wait to listen. <laughs> and we'll, we'll see you soon, Gita. See you soon. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. All right. This has been quite, I was about to say the morning, but it is now one in the afternoon here in New York and in the South. I'm going to put i I'm going to put a tail on the podcast real quick. Absolutely. And go then ahead. get us and then uh, we can, we can switch back to just hanging out for a minute. All right. Cyber listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like us, you can watch this live. Uh, I know we had a supersized episode today. Um, we will be back next week recording live at twitch.tv forward slash vice, uh, at 11 AM Eastern. Uh, you can find us anywhere. Fine pods are casted. And Hey, did you know I do another one called angry planet? Uh, and there's some more nuke content over there. If you'd like another conversation, uh, about nuclear weapons, um, and Oppenheimer and the people that made them and what maybe was left out of the film, more of an in-depth conversation about that. I've got a episode with Kelsey Atherton over there. You can find it. Just search angry planet in the podcasts and it'll bring, it'll come up. Thank you all so much for tuning in this week and we will see you next week. 
Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.